Okay, so we're starting a new sermon series. This is exciting. Uh, we just wrapped up uh, Christmas, and before that we wrapped up First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, we haven't been in the Old Testament for any significant time uh, in a while. I know we spent the summer in the Psalms, which we, we always do. Um, but outside of that, the last time we were in the Old Testament was, I think, Lamentations, and then before that was Isaiah. Um, and, and so Ezra and Nehemiah are basically the follow-up or the completion of the story that Isaiah prophesies of and Lamentations uh, is sad about, which is, the, uh, which is the Babylonian exile of the people of Israel. And Ezra and Nehemiah records the events that happen after the Babylonian exile. And so that's kind of the general context here. But um, I, I wanted to just spend a little bit of time talking about why we, we want to study these books. Um, they, they're not books that are very commonly uh, read, I don't think, by a lot of Christians. I don't know that we really uh, hear them preached very often. And when we do, it's generally because a church is trying to build a new building or something. And um, that's usually why they're used. It's because the, the whole theme of these books is the temple gets rebuilt in Jerusalem. Um, and so a lot of churches use this to, I don't know, pigeonhole some sort of a building campaign. Not doing that, okay? So we're not, we're not doing that. Um, we, really fundamentally, I think it's, it's a, a really beautiful books that, that don't get enough attention. And uh, they, they tell a story of God's continued faithfulness to his people. And I think that that's a, that's a message and that's a theme that is always worth exploring. That what happens on the tail end of uh, hardship and suffering it, it makes way for, for uh, a new life and, and uh, new beginnings and, and excitement in that. And so Ezra and Nehemiah record a very unique time in Israel's history, um, where, which really is never repeated. It's, it's this unique time where they're coming out of years and years, actually generation or so of, of Babylonian captivity, and now they're being uh, given an opportunity to start fresh and begin anew, and see how God works and meets them in that time. And so I think that that's really a, a good thing to explore as, as a church and as people in general. Um, but fundamentally, most fundamentally, we, we study these books because they're in the Bible. They're God's word. They, they matter. And the Bible itself tells us in Romans 15, verse 4, here's what Paul says, "...whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction." so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures. And so if nothing else, that's why we study these books, uh, is that they were written in the past for our instruction, for our good, for, for our encouragement, and for uh, pointing us to hope. And they do. They do point us to hope, uh, which is good. We all need that. And so as I've already said, this story is uh, picking up at the, uh, at, at the tail end of a very difficult time in the Old Testament Israel's history. Um, let's, let's just look at the first verse, uh, the first half of the first verse actually sets the context. So Ezra 1, verse 1, it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Uh, so what we're seeing here is the, 
this amazing thing. There's a, there's a really incredible thing happening. Cyrus is king of Persia. The Persians, at this point in history, defeated the Babylonians. Okay, so in, from like Iraq, Iran, all the way through to down to Egypt and all that whole area of the Middle East was at one time kind of fought between two or three different empires. Uh, the Babylonians, the Persians were the two big power players uh, at the time of the Old Testament. And Israel was a tiny little nation um, and really didn't have a whole lot of military might. And so they were sort of just swept in, right? But you basically had Egypt, uh, Persia, and Babylonia that were all fighting for regional dominance and, and from their perspective, world dominance because that was the world that they, they knew. And so at this point in time, Persia becomes the, the, the power force. And they take over and they defeat the Babylonians and they kill the Babylonian king who by that time was not Nebuchadnezzar anymore. He was the king at the start of all of this, um, getting Israel into captivity. But by this point, it was a different guy. He's now deposed uh, and Cyrus is now the king. Okay, so what happens through this? Cyrus is king of Persia. It's his first year as king of Persia. Um, And it says that the word of the Lord might, uh, by the mouth of Jeremiah, might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. That's an amazing statement. First of all, what this is telling us is this, that um, the overarching message, I think, of this passage, and in particular, this whole book, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, by the way, were taking together because they were at one time considered one book. Um, They tell the same story from two different perspectives, as we'll see. But, But the the whole thing uh, is a fulfillment of what God had promised to do through Jeremiah's prophecy. I think it's worth looking at what that's referring to. It's actually found in Jeremiah 29. If you have, uh, if you have a Bible and you want to go over there, it's, it's a little bit over to the, to the right of uh, Ezra here. But uh, Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah writes a letter to the exiles. So Isaiah is prophesying before Jeremiah and he's warning the people that Babylon is going to come in and, and take them into captivity. Basically, Isaiah is the, the guy who's there first saying, please change so that God doesn't have to do this to us. They don't change. They continue just digging deeper into their sin. Jeremiah comes along and he's the prophet that God appoints during the Babylonian captivity, just before it and throughout it. And that's why he writes Lamentations. Jeremiah wrote Lamentations as a way of expressing his grief and his sorrow of the, uh, for the trauma that happened to Israel as they were taken into captivity. But before that happened, Jeremiah, through God's word, writes a letter to the, to the future exiles. And if you look at verse 10 uh, through 14, I think this will just get us to uh, the heart of the letter. Um, it says, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. This place meaning their land. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare or peace and not uh, plans for, yeah, plans for welfare and not um, for evil to give you a future and a hope. 
Now that's a, that's a verse that we always, uh, you know, see on, you know, coffee mugs and we, we just sort of have this happy out of context use for that passage. But what God's using those words to tell the people of Israel is that he has a plan for them. But that plan is ultimately for their welfare after the course of 70 years of torment. So that's something to learn, right? Um, so God is, he has an ultimate plan, but it's going to come on the tail end of some serious suffering. Then he says this, verse 12, then you will call upon me and come to me and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So notice a couple things there. One, it is God who sent them into exile. It was his plan to do this. He's, he's the one who's orchestrating all of this. He's orchestrating the Babylonians to come in and, dis, and destroy the temple and take the people into uh, captivity to kill many of them, but also those who can be useful, they take away and turn into slaves. Much of Daniel, the book of Daniel, records what happens uh, during that time and how the Babylonians utilized uh, some of the exiles. Anyways, the, the, much of the Old Testament tells this story. But what God does in the midst of it is he, he makes a promise. And that promise is that he will bring them back. And that's what Ezra is picking up on. As he says that this was to fulfill the word of Jeremiah. The fulfillment of these words is that God is going to bring his people back to their land. And so how does God keep his promise in this? Well, he does it by stirring up it says at the end of verse one, he stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it into writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem." Then arose the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So here's what happens. Uh, God is stirring up the heart of Cyrus, this Persian king. Now let's, let's make sure we understand this. Cyrus was not a believer in, in the sense that we would understand this. He was a polytheistic God. We uh, uh, he, he worshiped many gods, in other words. He was a polytheistic worshiper. And we actually know from, from history, there's, there was a discovery back in the 40s, or maybe it was the 20s, uh, some archaeology dig figured out or discovered this thing that's now called the Cyrus Cylinder. And it's a, it's a clay cylinder that has a bunch of words all the way around it, like in this big circle. And it was a declaration of Cyrus, this king, who just sort of generically said to all the people who 
he had been captured by the Babylonians. Hey, go back to whatever place you came from and reestablish your worship and worship however you want to worship. So what we have in Ezra is a paraphrase, more or less, of what's said in the Cyrus Cylinder as it relates to the Jewish people. Because that's the, that's the context, right? He's, they're not really concerned. Ezra's not concerned about um, what's, you know, all these other random little nations that got captive too by the Babylonians. They're concerned about their own history. So they're, they're reciting more or less what Cyrus said, kind of in a paraphrase of it, as it relates to their uh, experience. And they're not wrong. It's not that it's, it's not saying, I'm not suggesting that they're incorrect. This is totally correct. It's just that they're, they're looking at the Cyrus declaration from their point of view, which is go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, which is exactly what Cyrus is allowing them to do. He was also allowing all of the nations to do the same. And there's no contradiction here at all. But uh, basically Cyrus had a very interesting uh, foreign policy. Uh, very interesting, much different than the Babylonians. Babylonians basically wanted to consolidate everybody under their religion, under their policies, under their politics, and, and basically make everybody into slaves. Cyrus had a different point of view. As a leader, he decided, you know, it would actually be better, and maybe we'd have like, people more willing to contribute to society if we just let them kind of live their lives. Uh, as best they can. So that's what Cyrus does. He, he does this, he makes this decision, we, we're told, because the Lord stirred him to do it. The Lord prompted him to do this. It wasn't that he came up with this idea all on his own. God is at work in and through all of this, moving the levers of human history to the benefit of his people. And he allows his people to come back into their land by putting uh, by allowing the Persians to have the strength to defeat the Babylonians, by placing a king in, in charge of Persia who is soft on the idea of letting people go back to their homelands. And, and what we're seeing in this is that God uses human leaders to accomplish his purposes. God keeps his promise to Israel. That's the overarching theme of this passage. God's keeping his promises but the way that God chooses or the means that God chooses to reach that end goal of keeping his promise is by turning the heart of this pagan, uh, non-believing leader to allow his people to go free. In fact, it's amazing when you look at uh, the, the, the Old Testament scriptures and how God prepared us for this. We can, we can go back to Isaiah and see something very fascinating. Uh, Isaiah, again, as I said, prophesied prior to the Babylonian captivity. He was there to warn the people against what they were doing. And yet in, in Isaiah 44, 28, here's something that God uh, said through Isaiah. He said this, Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall fulfill all my purpose? Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So even long before the Babylonian exile, God was by name calling this guy who hadn't even been born yet. Cyrus wasn't even alive at the time that Isaiah was prophesying these things. And yet by name, the Bible records this guy named Cyrus that God would use as a shepherd to lead his people into their land again. 
God keeps his promises. And he does this through humans. Larry Osborne, in, in a book called Thriving in Babylon, uh, which is basically his take on how to, how to live in a world that's hostile to the Lord, um, he, he says this over and over again, that God's in charge of who's in charge. God is sovereign over all of it. And if we don't really believe that in our core, we're always going to be scared. We're always going to be afraid of who's next and what's next and where's, where's this all going. But if we understand what the scriptures teach, which is so clearly laid out here, that God stirred the spirit of Cyrus in order to proclaim the freedom of his people to go back to Jerusalem, and, and that he does this over and over again throughout the Bible. He does this with Pharaoh. He does this with Nebuchadnezzar. He does this in the Old Testament with Herod and Pontius Pilate and the, and the leaders of Israel. All of these are, we're told in Acts specifically, that God predestined these things to happen through Herod, Pontius Pilate, and the, and the leaders of Israel, that Christ would be crucified so that his purposes are accomplished. God has a has a has the overarching power over even the individual leaders of the world and that should comfort us because we have a god who knows what he's doing he knows the end result of all of it he's he's moving human history in the way he wants it to move and he does that through ways that surprise us and he does that through people that surprise us I doubt anybody at the time of the Persian Empire seeing Cyrus come into power would have gone, yeah, that's the guy who is going to let us go. Like, this doesn't seem like a good idea. <laughs> like, Cyrus is kind of doing this thing, and it's like, why would you do that? This makes no sense on a political or power level, um, but, but it's because the Lord is at work under all of it we see that God stirs people's hearts. He stirs the unbelieving heart of Cyrus, but he also stirs another set of hearts in this passage. If you look down at verse five, it says, then rose up the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So this, this offer for the people of Israel to go back to their home that Cyrus proclaims for them was an option. It wasn't a requirement. Basically, Cyrus is like, hey, if you want to go back to where you came from, do it. If you want to stay where you are, that's fine too. And so what, what ended up happening is that God stirs Cyrus to do that, but then God also stirs up the believers' hearts, these people who are in exile, and he's stirring up their spirit to go back to Jerusalem and embark on, an, on a very difficult task, which is to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, to rebuild the house of the Lord. This was not an easy thing to do. This was going to be extremely time-consuming, uh, costly, as we'll see, uh, full of opposition. These are, as we work through these books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we're going to see that over and over again. This was not an easy thing to do. This wasn't a comfortable thing to do, but the Lord stirred up their hearts to do it. And so there's, there's a movement of God here at work in this book from the 
pagan king that God is kind of just levers, you know, he's moving everything in, in human history in the right way to get this open door for the people of Israel. And then he's stirring the hearts of the believers who have been in exile now for 70 years. Almost all of them uh, are, were not alive when the exile began. We'll read in this passage, uh, we'll read in the next chapter, I think it is chapter three or four, that there is uh, a group, a small, very small group of people who were alive at the uh, time of the Babylonian captivity. But these men would have been 70, 75, 80 years old by this point, right? So they, they were very old men, but there, were a, there was some of them still alive that remembered uh, what life was like before, as we'll see later in, in a couple weeks here. But, but most of the people who are having their hearts stirred have never seen the temple. They'd never lived in Jerusalem. They'd, they'd never done any of these things, and yet God is working in their lives. So here's a question fundamentally that we need to ask as we see this truth play out. Is there someone in your life who seems hardened to the Lord that you feel is a lost cause? Don't feel like it's a lost cause. God can stir their hearts. Is your heart hard to the Lord today? Do you feel like you are just, you've been beat up so much and you're just desensitized and you just don't want much to do with this. Ask the Lord to work in your heart, to stir you up, to stir up your, your affections for him again. God can do it. He will do it. He longs to do it. We need to ask him to do that work. We can't just manipulate our own hearts into the right action ultimately, not to have a long, long-term love for him, but the Lord can do that. He can do that for your unbelieving family members or friends and bring them to Christ. He can do that for you as you might feel disenfranchised or or discouraged by the Christian life. God can work and he's sovereignly at work in these things. So we see this overarching message of God keeping his promises and he does that through the human leadership, both of Cyrus and the leadership of Israel, the heads of the families of, of the Israeli tribes. But let's keep reading because we've got to pick it up in verse 6 and go down to the end of the chapter here. It says, And all who were about them aided them with the vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus king of Persia brought these out in the charge of Mithridath the treasurer who counted them out to Shesbazar the prince of Judah and this was the number of them. 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 20 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, a thousand other vessels. And all the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So here's what's happening uh, in in that passage. We're, We're being told that the Israelites, as they get to go back to Jerusalem, are, being, are, are able then to plunder the Babylonians. That's what's happening. 
This is, a, this is actually kind of mirroring the, the first Exodus, the Exodus in the book of Exodus. When they leave the, the Egyptians, they plunder the Egyptians on their way out. God, God enables them to take a bunch of stuff with them in order to uh, provide for them in the wilderness. And here again, we're seeing God sovereignly providing for his people. He's, he's softened the heart of Cyrus to just open up the treasury and go, you can have all this stuff back. That's crazy. This is like truly crazy, right? Like no, who would do this in their right mind? But uh, God is at work. Again, he's sovereignly working through all these things. And so Cyrus is like, oh, all that stuff that, that Nebuchadnezzar stole from you when he took you guys into captivity, you can have it all back. Have it all back. Bring it, bring it with you. I don't, I don't know why this is happening, but it's happening. And so this is very interesting. But what, what this is telling us is as it parallels the first exodus, it's, it's recording a, more or less a second exodus. An exodus not out of Egypt, but out of Babylon. And they're coming back to their land and they get their stuff back. This is what Jeremiah said would happen. Again, God keeps his promises. Jeremiah 27, 21 and 22 says, Thus says the Lord, of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah that is in Jerusalem. They shall be carried to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. So right there, Jeremiah, as the, as the captivity is about to happen, tells the people, all this stuff, all the gold, all the silver, all the, all the furniture in the temple of God, the things that were meant to be used for the worship of God, all these things are going to be taken out of here and brought to Babylon. But that's just for safekeeping. You'll get them all back. And they do. This is the fulfillment of that. And I, I don't know. I've, I would just be amazed at how the Israelites are responding to this whole thing. Like Cyrus goes, yeah, you can go back home. And also, I'm just going to give you everything back that we took from you. And you can just go. And so not only does the king let them go and in the freedom of going to, the, to Jerusalem, he pays for all of it. That's crazy. But, it, but it's, go, it's sh- showing a deeper point here. It's showing that God is able to fix any problem. He can fix anything. There's, there's no insurmountable issue with God. Nothing is impossible with him. He's fulfilling his promise that was spoken 70 plus years before through Jeremiah and he's fulfilling it through a crazy situation. Just letting all of this be given back. Now we're going to also work our way through chapter 2 but chapter 2 is pretty long and it's basically just, uh, it's going to sound like a phone book, okay? We're just going to read a lot of names. So I'm not going to read it all. Um, you can read it if you'd like. Uh, the, plus the names are too hard to pronounce, so I don't want to have to do that. Um, but this is basically chapter two is the record of the people who actually did end up returning to the land. This is a census, more or less. It's a record of, okay, who, who's going to do this? Who's going to show up and who's going to come back to rebuild the temple. So verse one says, now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. 
they returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sarariah, uh, Reliah, perhaps, uh, Mordecai, Bishan, Mispar, Bigvi, if you, if you need kids' names, by the way, any of these would, would work really great, uh, Raham and Benah, I guess. Okay, so from there, it just goes through. Here's the number of the people from Israel. Here's the number of the priests who came. Here's the number of the Levites. Here's the number of temple servants. Uh, I'm on verse 55 if you're not tracking. Uh, the, the sons of Solomon's servants are listed there. Verse 59, here's the names of those uh, who came from Tel Melah and Tel Harsha. Um, so just works through all of this. Again, we don't need to belabor this. Basically, here's the point that we're getting at. Uh, God actually um, keeps his promise to fulfill uh, his word through Jeremiah. He then stirs up these people, the people in, that are named in this passage in chapter two, to, to go and do the work. And I think the fact that all of them are named, or many of, the, at least the heads of these families are named, is because it goes to show that God cares for people individually. He, he cares about us as a collective group, uh, the church, but he also cares about you as a person. He cared about them enough so that they recorded their names one by one in this passage. God keeps his promise. He cares about his people. So if he did that for the people in Ezra's day, how much more so can we have confidence that he will do that for us in our day? Ezra lived at a time in human history before Christ. His story foreshadows Christ. It, it shows us that God keeps his promise and, he, and ultimately the whole story of Ezra and Nehemiah is here to preserve or to make a way rather for the Messiah to come into the world. If the people of Israel were still stuck in captivity and out of their land, there would be no place for Jesus to come and be among them. And so this is part of the plan of God to restore Israel back to their land in order to prepare a way for Jesus to come into the world. But now that we have Jesus, we, he has come, he has died, he has risen, he's in heaven interceding for us. How should we understand these things? Well, we can trust him to keep his promises to us. And in 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, the apostle Paul tells us that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Or in other words, they find their fulfillment in him. Every promise God makes is fulfilled in Jesus. So what has God promised us? Well, we can't possibly talk about all the ways he's promised us, but I think I want to just take us quickly to one passage. And I, I sort of went back and forth between Ephesians 1 or Romans 8, but I'm going to pick Romans 8 because you guys know I love that one. So we're going to go with this. And Romans 8, 31 to 39, it lays out for us just some of the promises of God that we can bank our lives on because of Christ. Here's how Paul explains it. He says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Promise number one, 
God is for you, so no one can truly be against you. See, that, I think, we, we, needs to resonate in our hearts. Yes, we can have people against us, but at the end of the day, those people amount to nothing. God is for you. So who can be against you? If God's on your, on your side through Christ, then why do you have to fear what's on the other side? God is caring for you. And we see that in, in the story of Ezra, that God actually turns a pagan king's heart to do what nobody would have thought he'd do. Just let everybody go. It's crazy. But if God is for you, who can be against you? Number two, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God gave his own son for us. Jesus died for you, the greatest gift that could be given. But if he's willing to give his own son up to death for your sins and mine, why would we think God is withholding anything else from us? That's Paul's point. If God gives his own son, how can we believe that he will not also with Jesus give us everything? And that's really what Paul's point is in Ephesians chapter one. He talks about the spiritual blessings. And we don't have to read all of this, but let me just read the the first little part of this. Verse three, uh, it says, blessed be the God and father, this is Ephesians one, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he rattles off what some of those are. That we were chosen before the foundations of the world to be loved by him. That we were predestined for adoption to God and now we're in his family. That that we have been redeemed through the blood of Christ so that all of our sins are forgiven. He's lavished on, on us all wisdom and insight showing us the mystery of his will. The things that were hidden before, we now understand through Christ. And he's going to unite all things in heaven and on earth. That's Ephesians 1, just in a very quick overview. God gave us his son. We can have confidence he will graciously give us all spiritual blessings. So the the fact that the temple ornaments and all the furniture and all of these gifts that God had given to the people during Ezra's day, that's just a tiny pale in comparison to the gifts he gives us through Christ. It's not about the material blessings. It's about the spiritual blessings that last eternally. Verse 33, back in Romans 8, it says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Translation, no sin we have ever committed will be charged against us because we've been justified or made right before God through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Nothing you've done will be held against you if you're in Jesus. It doesn't get much better than that. That's a heck of a deal right there. Verse 33, or 34 rather, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In other words, you will never face condemnation from a holy God because Jesus Christ died to take your condemnation. 
he was condemned so you would never be. These are just incredible blessings and promises that we can hold on to. One more, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing will ever separate you or me from the love of Jesus. That is the promise that we have to cling to with all of our hearts for all of our lives, that nothing that comes, nothing that comes can separate you from the love of God. Not tribulation, not your distress, not persecution, not famine, nothing. He just rattles off a list of terrible things that could happen to us in this life, but none of them can separate us from Christ. Nothing that happens in your life changes this. Jesus Christ loves you. The worst things that can happen to you may lead to physical death, but that only opens the door to eternal life. If we're in Jesus, we have nothing to lose and everything to gain. And so we can carry on in the strength of his promise for us. We are right now in a time of exile. The the New Testament teaches us this. We are in between two things. Christ has come. He has died. He has risen. He's in heaven and he will return. He hasn't returned. So we're in this in between. But what Ezra shows us is that even though we're in exile, there is a day coming when we will not be in exile anymore. And we have a great anticipation looking forward to the day of Christ's return where all the spiritual blessings that have been promised to us will be given to us. So with that, let's our, let our hearts rejoice in Jesus that nothing can separate us from him, that he loves us to the end and he will come back for us one day and we get to, we get to hang in there till then. All right, let me pray. Jesus, we love you and thank you. We love you because you loved us. We love you because you first loved us and you came to die for our, every sin. You, you have come to heal every weakness. You have come to, uh, to rid us of all of our suffering ultimately one day as you return again and establish your kingdom. We pray that we, as we are sojourning, as we are in exile, uh, as we wait for that glorious day, that we would uh, wait with expectation and hope, knowing uh, that we have everything in you. I pray that you would encourage our hearts today. And I pray that you would strengthen us for the days ahead. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.